0: Hi, folks, this is Brad Watson, pastor at Nexus Church. We are glad you have found our sermon podcast and that you're interested in our teachings. If you've ever considered financially supporting our work at Nexus Church, you can do that at nexuschurch.ca/slash give. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Even better than the real thing, we're staying uh, this week with Jesus' question: What do you want? In Scripture, Jesus strikes me as genuinely curious about what people want. His questions reveal what's in a person's heart. So I guess it was that openness and curiosity in Jesus that encouraged James and John to pull a pretty bold move. In Mark chapter 10, these two sons of Zebedee come to Jesus saying this, "'Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask.'" I picture Jesus being somewhat amused by this, like, hey, guys. What do you want me to do for you? They reply, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. And when the rest of the disciples hear about what James and John were up to, they were indignant. And so Jesus makes it a teachable moment, talking to them about downward mobility and moving away from hierarchies. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. It's that upside-down kingdom of Jesus again. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. If you want to go up, you've got to go down But James and John just wanted to go up. They envied the splendor and renown they imagined Jesus was going to experience. And they wanted to get their foot in the door. They wanted to share in it. But as we know, the disciples weren't great at sticking with Jesus through all the tricky parts. They wanted the good stuff only, please. And Jesus calls them on it. You want my life? Are you sure? You want to share in my glory, but do you want the rest of it? Do you want it all, James and John? Sometimes we see the advantages others have and we want them too. we just don't always see the whole story nor do we necessarily want the whole story. We don't want the real thing, we want something that's even better than the real thing. As James and John reveal their rather human desire for greatness and power and control without necessarily all that hard work and responsibility, Jesus helps them reflect on their desires. He doesn't shame them, but he does challenge them and reveals the truth in order to teach with love. And I I find I can only face my murky bits if I bring compassion to them. Otherwise, I get stuck in a terrible game of ping pong gutter ball. Pretty sure I invented this, uh, but maybe you know it too. It's just swinging back and forth between self-rejection and self-justification, which both, as it turns out, are just excuses to avoid facing myself to avoid the truth, to avoid change, and to avoid accepting myself. So self-rejection says things like, come on, dummy and normal person would be over this by now. And self-justification says, yeah, I'm the worst. It's just the way I am. As long as I ping-pong between them, I'm never really facing and owning the truth, but it's the truth that sets us free. So we can answer Jesus' question truthfully. We can face our wanting, and we can let it lead us out of that game, lead us somewhere good. Desires, though? For most of my early life, desires did not have positive connotations for me. Desires were carnal of the flesh, things to be denied, suppressed, like our appetite. Indulged, only little, only if it involved chocolate or potlucks. It wasn't until I was introduced to St. Ignatius that I heard people talking about desire in a positive way. So more on him later. I'm uh, moving towards a more balanced approach to trying to live in the tension here because desires are tricky. They can steer us wrong. But I believe that our desires are not the problem. It's actually how we treat them. It's our relationship with them that changes how they impact our world, both our inner world and our outer world. I believe desires can connect us to ourselves, others, and God, and they can also distance us. So this morning, as we consider what we want, I'd love for us to examine our relationship with our desires. What role do they play in our lives? What do we do with the desires that we notice? Do you tend to deny or fight your desires? I know I can easily shame myself or ridicule myself for the things that I want. It's tricky to face them sometimes. They can make us feel weak or silly or selfish or broken. It's hard to sit with them long enough to discern what's really there. So we can easily just give in and go get the things we want no matter the cost. Or we can skitter away from that sinful or selfish desire. But I think it's pretty futile to try to fight them or deny them because we're pretty much driven by them one way or another. Better to have them out in the open and have a good relationship with our wanting. Jesus invites us to notice our desires. Again, not to shame, but to invite us further up and further in to more reality and more freedom. Yeah, I know, listening to my soul can be time consuming and difficult, it can be misleading, I can fool myself. And which desire gets to win? When I sit down to ask myself what I want, I can get really squirrely, it's hard work. And it usually involves making my way through some tears as I give space to listen to my heart, which can be pretty tender. It takes time and effort to get to the good stuff and then I don't always know what to do with what I find. So I've come up with a handy shortcut a life hack, if you will, which I will share with you. A really easy way to figure out what we want is to want what others have. Or what others say we should want. Almost the same thing. What do I want? What you have. In fact, I'll take two, please. I want what you have, not really because you have it, but more because I don't have it. I'm lacking. So what is that? It's envy. It was actually the Enneagram that finally put a name to that for me, and I didn't love that revelation. But as David Benner says, no one should work with the Enneagram if what they seek is flattery. But no one should fail to do so if what they seek is a deep knowing of self. And I've found that to be very true. Hence the vital need for self-compassion if you're going to wade in the waters of self-awareness however you get there. According to the Enneagram system, though of nine personality lenses, envy is the main driving emotion or passion for someone who sees through the lens of a four. It's my go-to pair of glasses. But we all struggle with it. Of course, we're all completely free to experience all of them, anger, pride, deceit, greed, fear, gluttony, lust, and laziness. Who says you can't have it all? Envy is just the particularly challenging temptation uh, for someone with my lens. But envy is not my identity. It's just a self-defeating strategy I keep coming back to because something in my wiring thinks that's a good plan. But it's using an ineffective tool. We all do this, we just use different tools. So envy came as a total surprise to me at first. But then I saw it everywhere. It's that terrible feeling of inadequacy that floods me when I see someone else who's good at something I'm not good at or has a quality I don't have. It's a feeling of not enoughness, like I'm missing something. So that can be personal qualities like happiness, comfort, normalcy, or material things that represent so much more than a purse. Whatever it is. It comes with a sense of incompleteness and a sense that I'm already behind. So part of me is always searching for that thing that would complete me. Others have it, I don't. It feels like a disadvantage, even a fatal flaw that will eventually result in complete and utter abandonment. I really don't wanna be envious. Envy is bad, right? Deadly sin even. It can cause a lot of problems for us. Much as it's actually trying to solve our problems, it could help us, but often it doesn't. Desires can connect us, but they can also distance us. So if you've read the Bible, you know we've been warned. We see that envy can bring us personal harm, having debilitating effects to our physical, spiritual, and emotional well-being, and lead to a destructive life distant from God. There are so many biblical illustrations in various stories like Cain and Abel, Joseph and his brothers, and there are many admonitions in the wisdom literature. It's right there in the Ten Commandments too, which tell us, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. We are not to desire the possessions or attributes or wives of others. But the Ten Commandments just kind of say don't, not really big on how we don't. Just don't envy, right? Well, how do we do that? Jesus can bring some real how-to wisdom to the just don't rules. Jesus teaches through stories and questions, drawing our attention to our individual deep and tricky issues with so much love. So we get that important self-awareness because of the compassion that is shown to us. When we reject ourselves or others for being human, we actually get stuck in the thing we're trying so hard to distance ourselves from. Rather than healing and freedom and growth, we can get trapped in dark places. Compassion is pretty key, it turns out. Jesus teaches with compassion, not to shame, but to heal and bring freedom. So as we explore our envy together here, Let's do it the Jesus way. Let's do some learning, exploring, hopefully get some clarity and show ourselves the deep compassion and gentleness that Jesus shows us. So there are two kinds of envy, according to Brené Brown, an expert in these things. I kind of see them as poles or poles leading to a kind of continuum. Envy can be as simple as just wanting what someone else has, an object, a quality characteristic or some special status. Envy is wanting something you don't have. So we might see someone and think, wow, that person is so grounded and self-assured. I'd like to be more like that. Can draw us to emulation. And this can be quite encouraging, and beneficial to our lives. Others can remind us of the things we've forgotten or haven't prioritized. When I was little, I wanted to learn to play the piano like Frank Mills. Anyone remember that piece? We didn't have a lot of records. Um, (laughs) Anyone remember that piece, The Music Box Dancer? Uh, I loved that song and I envied Frank Mills' piano skills. Early on, wanting to play that song helped me to stick with piano lessons when I wanted to quit. And sometimes it's just with stuff, like we go get the delicious sauce or the vitamins our friends Friends use. Uh, Wanting what other people have can serve as an important reminder to us and can lead us in good directions. And then there's the second kind of envy. Sometimes envy comes with hostility. I want that, and I don't want you to have it. In fact, I want you to be destroyed. (laughs) This part of the continuum is where schadenfreude shows up, where we find perverse joy in watching each other fail, fall short, or get taken down a notch. It's a little dark, let's be honest. It tends to cast a pall over the other flavor of envy. It's this second kind of hostility and violent desire for someone's downfall that makes all envy feel malicious even when we're not feeling hostility. Because they're connected, we may push it all away, rejecting ourselves for the slightest whiff of it. This kind of envy is more likely to happen out of a sense of fear and scarcity, and it has given envy a bad name, frankly. We've got a whole range here from this innocent, gentle feeling of, ooh, nifty, all over here, all the way over to where you get completely mired in the grip of envy until it takes over your whole life and you kill your brother Abel because God liked his sacrifice better. But maybe we have a bit of control over where our feelings end up on that continuum because maybe there's some truth to that saying, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. What if these little birds that visit us are simply information, a trailhead, and our work is to be wise in how we deal with that initial noticing. Even this bad, violent kind of envy at the extreme end of the continuum, this is a very strong emotion to be sure. Schadenfreude has a lot to tell us about what we want. So how about we ask, what is that touching? what could be causing this strong reaction? What if instead of fighting our envy or denying our envy, we open the door to our envy, inviting it to enter, and we let the shame stay out on the porch? What if we let ourselves want and stay curious about what the wanting is all about and be very careful about the actions we take after we've been giving everything a good listen? In On Our Best Behavior, the book Nexus Women Are Reading and Discussing, Elise Lonan asks, what if we can build a new model of expressing desire, one that untethers it from the shame and embarrassment that often come with daring to have a dream for yourself? If we can do that, I think it can lead us to freedom. And a more grounded, open-hearted way of living, I think it will mean becoming more like Jesus. Facing our true feelings means accepting the fact that we're human beings that struggle with human things. Envy is a particular challenge for this human, even if I think it isn't or shouldn't be. When I deny it, it can grow and get a little weird. Like the time long ago when I was helping set up a prayer room at a festival in the UK. Vicki Beeching was a worship leader there and she was at quite a few of the team meetings. I had some pretty strong feelings whenever she was in the room and I now know it was envy. I was deeply envious of her ability, her platform, her hair. (laughs) It's epic. She was everything I thought I was supposed to be, but better. So I started feeling really crappy about myself. Instead of meeting myself with compassion, I just got stuck in the emotions, which led me to just kind of staring her down. I was just watching her so intensely. My envy was running wild, wild, but I didn't realize it. I, just, I kept asking myself, why couldn't I just act like a normal person? But I kept on being weird. Noticing my envy with compassion would have helped. I could have maybe let her be her and me be me. I could have connected with her, maybe learned something, maybe encouraged her. Or maybe I could have just lived my life and let her live hers instead of freaking her out. For a long time afterwards, I shamed myself over my weird behavior, but it has helped so much to work with compassion and humility and accept who I am and what my weird little heart is like. So nowadays, it's still hard to see my envy sometimes, but I'm learning to invite it in for tea and give it a listen. So when we notice envy, we follow it with compassion. It can take us deeper where we can find what we actually want. And we decide carefully what to do about that, which is tricky, to be sure. Because we can't always have what we want. Chances are when we want someone's purse or job or physical characteristics, we actually want the intangible something that thing represents to us, the dream behind it. We want the good without the bad, the dream without the work to achieve it. We want something better than the real thing. And much of what we envy, we can never have because we are witnessing this glorious thing that belongs to someone else. It's theirs and theirs alone. And we must be content to enjoy it from afar. Hopefully, it can point us back to ourselves and our own lives, our own green grass. It will also point us back to our loss and lack and longing. And that just hurts. To follow our envy, we answer Jesus' question, what do you want? And with compassion, we reflect, where is my wanting coming from? So let's use my example. Why would a person such as me be so envious of a person such as Vicki Beeching? To answer this, we must journey further back into the past. I started leading worship when I was about 14. I had interests, some musical talent, years of piano lessons, and this amazing opportunity to grow with our church as we transitioned from hymns led by piano and organ to a worship team with drums. At that time, it was through music I connected most easily with God and with myself and others, and we had wonderful times of worship. I received a lot of praise in that role. People would come up and say lots of interesting things to me meant to be encouraging. In fact, one one time someone just came up and said, encouragement. (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) The others said things like, if you're this good now, just imagine how good you'll be when you grow up, or you have an anointing, or you should try out for American Idol. (laughs) All of this I experienced as pressure, confusing pressure. To fulfill the expectations and be worthy of their admiration. I didn't ask myself if I wanted to do that. I just kept going, trying to be what they praised me for. And when I looked at superstars in the worship music scene, yeah, that's a problematic phrase. I hear it. When I looked at superstars in Christian worship, like Vicki Beeching, all I managed to see was the distance between myself and what I envied. What I thought I wanted. I didn't measure up to that, and I never would, and I never will. Much of my life was shadowed by a sense that I should do something with my music. I don't think I asked myself very clearly what I wanted to do with my music or what I was willing to do to pursue that dream. I did ask what God wanted, but I'm not sure how well I listened because my inner listening device was really biased towards noticing only how I was failing. I collected others' expectations, both expressed and imagined, especially imagined. And I made this thing that I was sure was God's will, but it was actually more like an idealized goal. And I wasn't reaching that goal because in my mind, there was something wrong with me, not my goal. My scarcity mindset convinced me that Vicky's good things were somehow a threat to my security and success. Something inside me said, I'm not okay. I'm not okay that she has that. So for the longest time, my music had a deep sense of heaviness and failing because I wasn't what other people were. So I was neither accepting my own uniqueness and what I had been given, nor was I accepting my own limitations. I wasn't listening to to the fact that I didn't want to do the things Vicki Beeching had to do to be where Vicki Beeching was, never mind that it was her life, not mine. I wanted something even better than the real thing, what she had as far as I could see it from the outside, which looked bright and shiny and free of struggle. Remember Jesus' second question to James and John, can you drink the cup? The cup of each of our lives is filled with both joy and suffering and we must accept it all. When I looked at Vicky, I only saw the good. I didn't see her struggle. I can't imagine though, it was easy to come out as gay in her context and face criticism and vitriol along with all the support. And I just discovered as I searched for this photo of her, she is battling severe and chronic illness. She's confined to a wheelchair and housebound, unable to work, do what she loves. Her very active social media threads have fallen silent. Envy fits with a worldview that thinks I can and should somehow avoid trial and tribulation. Like James and John, I have wanted just the good stuff, please, something even better than the real thing, good outcomes, less suffering. And sure, some suffering is avoidable, but I confess I have believed that a good life comes from being good. I've equated a a person's suffering or lack thereof with their character. So I thought if I could be better, try harder, I too could have a happy, shiny life just like them. When I suffered, I blamed myself or my character or lack thereof. But we don't get to have only the good. Human lives include suffering. So can we sit with the ache of wanting in our hearts? Can we acknowledge our limits and losses and longings? Can we recognize that the bittersweet is common to humans, though some of it experienced more often, more deeply? Can we embrace our wantings and allow them to connect us to others, to ourselves, to God? So I'm wondering, maybe envy moves along this continuum depending on how we treat it. We can let it run wild. Or we can support it, give it a kind of trellis to grow on. So I'm calling this wild envy and supported desires. When we let our envy run wild, we're living in a scarcity mindset and we're scrappy, competing for resources. We perceive the good things others experience as a threat to our own security and our well being. So this is where we experience the Schadenfreude more often happiness at others' expense. On the other hand, when we're resourced and we're listening to our desires, our wanting has support to help us grow in good directions. So we're more relaxed, secure, confident, curious, compassionate. We know there's enough for everyone. When I'm rooted in love and the enoughness of it, I can just accept what is and be open to joy wherever it may be found. So we can celebrate wholeheartedly with others when they succeed. In contrast to Schadenfreude, When we exult in others' downfall, Brene Brown says there's also Freudenfreude, which is enjoyment of others' success. Joy in others' joy. Here's a picture of Jamie Lee Curtis at the 2023 Golden Globes Award when Michelle Yeoh won Best Actress. She's celebrating her friend's success with so much joy. Happiness is amazing. It's so amazing. It doesn't matter if it' yours, if it's yours or not. This feels like a superpower to me. I can feel good along with others. I don't have to have their thing to enjoy it. So let's contrast this wild envy with supported de- desires. Wild envy where Schadenfreude tends to grow and supported desires where we can grow towards Freudenfreude and we'll consider how that might impact our lives. So left to run wild, envy can blind us to what is. It's harder to see our own giftedness and our own limitations. When I was run by others' expectations and caught up in envy, I wasn't noticing what I had or that I didn't even want what Vicky had. When we're entangled in this grip of envy, we're not actually fully living in reality. We're denying who we are and what we have as well as who we aren't and what we don't have. It is just more difficult to accept our reality and receive our uniqueness. But when envy is supported and when we face our desires, our desires, and we begin to discern where our wanting is coming from, we begin to own who we are and what we have. We're more free from the pressures of expectations wherever they come from. We're more free to pursue what God has placed in us And bonus, we can let everyone else be themselves too. Frankly, it's a relief for everyone. Wild or unsupported envy also wastes our time and energy because it divides our attention and it weakens our priorities. We want that and that and that. It's like the spiritual equivalent of shopping hungry or shopping at Costco. We can end up with stuff we don't necessarily want or need. (laughs) Like someone else's life goals. I know it can feel a lot easier to focus on what's happening over there than it is to address the life in front of us right here. Facing my own stuff is uncomfortable. Feelings, we just naturally veer away. But the divided heart can never be happy because it never can get what it wants because it doesn't know what that is. It can't decide. On the other hand, when our wanting is supported and listened to, we can focus our attention and live more intentionally, which means all kinds of good things. Facing our wanting clarifies our goals and purpose and just helps us to be more present and more whole, less divided. So this is all easier said than done, of course. It's always that way with these things, but it doesn't mean it's impossible, it just means it's hard. It means we won't get this perfect. Or without struggle. I have no idea what I desire most of the time because it's always filtered first through what others want. I've spent a long time ignoring and fighting my desires and dreams. I thought I should be a worship rock star and I thought I should be a classroom teacher. They were close. Right now, where I am feels good to me. So I'm learning, I'm growing towards listening to my desires. And every little step brings freedom and makes a difference. So Saint Ignatius, 16th century priest, theologian, founder of the Jesuits, influencer of all spiritual directors, and expert in misspent youth, has a lot to say about desires. He teaches that our truest desires reflect God's desires in us and for us. Our truest selves are like God, relational, So our truest desires seek to bring us into community and love. The deepest, truest desire of every human heart is to be known, to be loved, and to love forever. Yeah, we can deceive ourselves. We can settle for something more surface, more immediate, or something that belongs to someone else. But ultimately, all our longing is a longing for God, who alone can satisfy our hearts. So our desires can be pathways to enter into loving collaboration with our Creator. Ignatius encourages us to spend time with our questions, our fears, our hurts, and our dreams in prayer. Slowly over time, we can build trust with ourselves and God so we can sift through it all to find what we really long for, that desire put there by God. And even the faintest trace of a desire is evidence of God's invitation. If we lack the desire for something we'd like to desire, we can bring that to God. We can bring the, I want to, I want to, I want to, want to serve the needy. I want to, want to be more compassionate. Those are glimpses of God. We can find God in our desires because God is the ultimate end of all human desire. So we don't need to fight or be afraid of our desires. We listen, we pay attention to our wanting, we stay in conversation with it as we remain in conversation with God. So we go further into the deep and allow ourselves to discover our deepest, holiest desires. And slowly we come to desire more of the time, what is real, what is best, not just what's expedient or merely safe or what we're supposed to want. So to do this, Ignatius instructs us to settle quietly into what we most deeply seek. When we quiet ourselves, we'll be more able to hear the voice of the Spirit, that deep calling to deep. To know our deepest desires, not just our superficial wants, we connect with the creator of our desires. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So I had no idea that envy was present for me because it was so everywhere. It was the air I breathed, and it will be a life, a lifelong pull for me. But now that I can see it, it's easier to loosen it, give me a little breathing room, some space for a more creative and compassionate way of relating to myself and the world. Envy is not the whole story. I can also experience and cultivate equanimity, which is the opposite pull to envy. It's like level-headedness, but for your heart even-heartedness. It's contentedness with who I am and what I've been given. It goes hand-in-hand with that Freudenfreude, joy in others' joy. I experience it most when I'm rooted and grounded in love, when I know I'm enough, not because I've collected enough shiny things to fill that gaping hole in the sense of my inadequacy and scarcity, but because God created me, knows me, all of me, and loves me. Owning and supporting our desires is vital to living faithfully with open hearts. And there is hope for the envious, because our journey isn't a pass-fail assignment. Jesus' path people keep seeking towards love, towards balance. Following our desires can lead us slowly, messily, towards transformation and connection. Love can lead us to find and be satisfied with the real